1: yesteryear ballyhoo review good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome 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 to the yesteryear ballyhoo review the program dedicated to returning to the early days of cinema for a chat some context a few laughs and lessons to learn from some of its finest treasures my name is zach eastman there will now be a slight pause while you say who gives a flying fuck well i'm here regardless of that rather brutal um verbal assault i just made up Uh, I should explain to the listener why we are here and why you must listen to the voice that sounds like Tom Snyder if he had all the helium inhaled into his system and his vocal cords were arranged to sound like many scratching nails on a chalkboard. Well, this show spawned from another uh, show that I produced for Real Nerds podcast called The Shamley Silhouette. Uh, This was a show dedicated to the many facets and elements of the career of Alfred Hitchcock, and for 25 episodes, I and my guests travailed through his career and legacy. And as things wound down on Hitchcock, the realization that there are many other Golden Age Hollywood films and stories to discuss with folks uh, that I had the privilege of speaking with with Shamley, as well as others who haven't gotten the chance to, I thought a great way to do that would be to segue into Hollywood in general. As many who are listening know, there are a multitude of amazing shows dedicated to this subject um, and uh, lists... uh, yeah, there's just so many and uh, and they produce them so well that one you, you gotta wonder how you could even begin to try and attempt something of your own. Um, so I'm apparently silly enough to do it and do what I shall. Uh, originally, the plan was to take a long hiatus until I was ready to tackle our next big subject um, which, if you've been following through Instagram, you've already kind of gathered that it will be about two figures, John Houston and Orson Welles. Um, but that particular story is going to require much more planning and prep uh, than even Shamley did. Um, and I. in the meantime, I wanted to keep the discussion of movies past going. That's why until the next big series, um, you are going to be hearing episodes where I chat with a multitude of guests on a multitude of films to pass the time as we wait for Houston Wells to get ready. Um, on this show, you will also hear um, supplemental uh, discussions on Hitchcock because um, believe it or not I can't get away from that subject um, and uh, for everything in general with this show we're going to take on the Shamley format and extend it to these other films uh, as well as those extensions of Hitchcock um, there also may be some surprises from time to time you'll have to stay tuned for those um, for now on each episode though I will be uh, bringing on a guest each week to Talk about a golden age Hollywood film, uh, a film from early, early cinema. Uh, Basically, the guideline is, is that the films must have been made and released prior to 1968, the year that was a collision of uh, a lot of events that uh, birthed the American new wave. Uh, We will not only discuss Hollywood, though, um, we will also discuss the sideline efforts in those early years before 1968, uh, the importance of European cinema, the rise of international cinema that had yet to claim its own voice, and we may dive into early film's counterpart and promotion, uh, the radio. Uh, We will talk a lot about old-time radio on this show as it relates to how these films gained so much uh, traction in their day, thanks to the promotion that radio was able to use as a tool. We'll also probably talk about television and what part it had to play eventually down the line in um, the, the, the demise of Golden Age Hollywood. Uh, this is all to say we're going to go back to those thrilling days of yesteryear. Uh, we will be doing so in the hopes to have a good laugh, a good chat, and to learn what we can of the past, the context of the films we're digesting, and how to if possible learn from uh those uh films to know where we can go from here as films continue to be made uh in this you know current century um unless covid finds a way to stop that here's hoping that does not happen um and uh you know and i i keep forgetting about holograms holograms might also be the demise of cinema as we know it um I know we all laughed at that hologram that happened at the Oscars that one year, but um, uh, he might be laughing right back at us as soon as um, as soon as it takes over dominance in the media um, industry. Um, but let's get on to our first episode of the Ballyhoo Review. For our inaugural discussion, we are re- we are recording in the month of October. We're in a mood of much fear and fright, so what better way to start? given this moment in time than with a blood-curdling tale. And there are many from the era. The birth of our modern expectations for the intense, shocking, and terrifying stems from these early efforts. For our picture today, we will dive right in on one of the most notorious, shocking, and supreme triumphs of universal horror. You would not think a film from the year of 1934 would lay into the thematic elements of satanic worship, skinning one alive, and a countless number of taboos that still carry relevance being broken at nearly every turn in one hour and five minutes. Yet, you have probably seen the name in many a book or documentary about its stars. Our film today not only deals with the lurid, but also the legendary, the earliest Titans of Terror, the cream of the creepy crop, Bela Lugosi, and Boris Karloff. And yes, that is the correct billing, despite Universal always getting it wrong in the past. Their individual talents would lend the proper air of danger and gruesomeness to this tale of revenge known as The Black Cat. Here to chat about The Black Cat is a filmmaker and film lover. In 2011, he, he and co-director Richard Taylor released their love letter to Troma, Adam, the Amazing Zombie Killer, to an unsuspecting and appreciative audience of gorehounds and admirers of the audacious. He is also the host of a podcast that will soon be coming to your earbuds that celebrates the love of Troma. But today, he shall have to talk of all things black and white and shocking. Please welcome Zach Bynes.
0: Hey, how's it going?
1: Oh my gosh. You you are here to help set the tone for what will uh, uh, obviously be a delve into insanity that is this podcast, sir. So thank you for stepping up to the task.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. No, it makes sense. Like you want to do it right on the first episode. So you can only have another Zach on the, ep- on the show for the, the first dueling
1: Zach's that way. It doesn't <laughs> me-
0: get messed up. It's two Zach's. You can't go wrong.
1: Yeah. If, 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 if I don't work out, you can always take over the show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Cause that's the thing with yesteryear Ballyhoo who review it requires a Zach hosting. Otherwise it doesn't work. So it's you, me or Zach Afron, or Zach Galifianakis. So one of us four needs to get this show off with a bang. Um, no one but can no.
0: distinguish us in a room. If we're all standing next to each other, no one could tell the difference. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, you know, we all look alike. Like, Zach Efron and I look exactly alike. It's very scary how alike we look. Um, and, and, you know, and you look like Efron way more than I do. So, you yeah, know, it's obviously... The, like,
0: it's the six-pack.
1: It's the six-pack, yes. The, the absolute six-pack... Um, I mean, mine has been flabbing a little bit, but whatever, you know, like sometimes quarantine kind of hits you in the worst way possible. Um, So, Zach, I want to uh, start off first off by uh, talking a little bit about what you've done and in the filmmaking community out here in Denver and also your love of horror films. So how do you get into uh, filmmaking?
0: So uh, it started out um when back in back like most most uh people our ages started out in middle school high school just i was like i want to act and then i realized that uh the actors they don't come up with the stuff that's on the screen um so it's like well i'm gonna write my own plays and um so i started writing kind of short skits and stuff very monty python-esque back in high school middle school and then um i got introduced to uh trauma movies I loved horror movies and I had a friend who um made a bootleg tape of Cannibal the Musical which is pretty big out here in Colorado Trey Parker Matt Stone's first movie um yeah. but Lloyd Kaufman the creator of the Toxic Avenger had a trauma was before the movie talking about how easy it is to make movies and you just saw all this crazy blood and gore and I was like that's exactly what I want to do so I just every Friday night leave school go movies with my friend Richard Taylor and just see how they did the special effects and this was pre-DvD so we would just watch the watch like Evil Dead frame by frame to see how they how they did in these special effects and and later we uh we got a little bit older and Troma was asking for people to go work on their movie, Poultry Guy's Night of the Chicken Dead. We've had several short films under our belt by then. We went to film school in high school and even college at that point. And uh, so we went out, did special effects on Poultry Guy's Night of the Chicken Dead, came back to Colorado with what we learned, made a short film called The Misled Romance of Cannibal Girl and Incest Boy.
1: Oh, how fortunate that we'll be talking about the black cat today.
0: <laughs> right? When, yeah. While watching the black cat, I was like, did you know, Cannibal Girl would be a nice little uh, short to show right before the, the movie.
1: <laughs> Um But yes, yeah, so you made that. And then you got what you guys ended up doing, which is spectacularly inspiring, is you guys ended up making a feature film.
0: Yeah. So we took the. You know, what we learned from the short film, we had that play at film festivals all around the world. And we took our fan base with that and just got everybody excited about, you know, seeing more stuff from us. And we pretty much exhausted what we could do in the short film realm. So uh, we took four years and we made Adam the Amazing Zombie Killer, which is a horror comedy bowling zombie but maybe not zombies uh movie and at the same time as we shot that movie we made a feature length documentary about the making of adam the amazing zombie killer that we shot alongside of making the movie so yes which
1: is i will say it's one of the most it's it's like the both the film and the documentary are essential back-to-back watches um especially if you are trying to make films yourself because this is um, you're not only watching a uh, a love letter film uh, by two people who are very passionate about the subject, which is you and Richard, but also the trials and tribulations of filming, especially in a place like Colorado.
0: One of the things I don't like when you're watching, you know, the quote behind the scenes uh, extra features on DVDs is they'll get a bunch of the actors who are, you know, they'll they'll be like, oh, we all loved each other. It was great. Here's a blooper. and uh it's like 15 minutes and it's like cool well i really got a sense of how tom cruise felt on the set of that movie um i'm sure he went through all the same trials and tribulations as everybody else did on that set so in our documentary we you know we show our triumphs as well as our failures um which i think is important for anybody making a movie that you know for every good thing that happens, you'll have a hundred terrible things that happen while making a movie. And we show, we show all of, you know, the warts and all of making Adam amazing zombie killer. And I gave Richard Taylor plenty of warts while making that movie.
1: Yeah. And, and, but I will say that what's what's amazing is that like the documentary also has an arc of its own, that uh, it, it, it's, it's a very, it's a good reflection of the struggle it is to make a film of any kind. And also the, unexpected things that happened along the way like you 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 got into a rather nasty accident and fucked up your leg and that that uh that that part portion of the dock is uh is like a is a if you're talking about a dramatic point it's like a high it's a it's an interesting dramatic point of where everything goes and the fact that you not only overcame that but also kept everything going to finish and wrap the sucker up uh, it's like a very triumphant story by the end, which is something that, like, it just blows me away every time I sit back and watch it.
0: We noticed the documentary is getting a little boring, so I had to spice it up. Yeah. <laughs> no one was feeling for the characters. They're like, that Zach dude's kind of a dick. <laughs> so, yeah, like,. We didn't even know if we were going to be able to finish the movie, and right now you can you can watch it. It's uh, it's on YouTube. You could rent it. Um, it, I have DVDs for sale. I'm sure Zach will post a link to my socials, and you'll be able to find them.
1: I absolutely will. And I, I will tell you that if you haven't watched Adam, the amazing zombie killer, um, if you're a fan of trauma or even if, you know, if you're a fan of like uh, the, like the, the bombastic and audacious and this, the overall insanity of fun that could be had within a, with a, within a span of an hour and 20 minutes, you've got to sit down and watch Adam, the amazing zombie killer. It is, it, it, I, I rewatched it for my Halloween fest that I've been doing at home. And uh, God, it was so much fun just rewatching this, like this, this, you guys clearly love what uncle Lloydy put together. Uh, and I, 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 I'm always blown back every time I look at it going like, man, like they get away with 10 times more things than I'd ever get away with in terms of content and just
0: uh, like effects and <laughs> this is <laughs> We, we just, we just uh, go for it. You know, the, yeah. every, everything's everything's on the plate when we're making a movie. Yes. except for money we typically don't ever have any money so that's... well no,
1: none of us do like that's
0: <laughs> the dine and dash filmmakers
1: there you go well hey you know what there's a there's a there's a there's a realm for dine and dash there's a room for fine cuisine there's a room for all kinds of different meals that you can get out of a cinema so and uh it, it when, when to to segue over into our main discussion today i will say that As I rewatched it, I was like, this is indeed the the most perfect film to talk with you about that we're going to talk about. Because what we're going to talk about is a film that kind of breaks the ground that you guys continued to tread on with Adam the Amazing Zombie Killer in terms of how much can we get away with. It's
0: kind of nuts that this movie was, what was it, 1934? Yep,
1: 1934.
0: Like, just watching it. The, the stuff they got away with, like it feels like stuff they were starting to tread on in the 60s era of like horror cinema, not in the 30s, which kind of blew me away.
1: Well, and there's a reason that you're seeing a little bit more get past, but also the fact that you see some things pulled back on a little bit, and we'll talk about that as we go along. But we are talking about The Black Cat from 1934, directed by Edgar G. Omer. Uh, produced by Carl Elney Jr., a screenplay by Peter Rurick, and uh, additional writing by Edgar G. Elmer in the story, based on The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe, although not really. This has nothing to do with Poe's story other than the fact that there is a black cat in the movie. Um, and you have cinematography by John J. Meskel. You've got music by Heinz Eric Romheld. Romheld. Uh, and this is a universal picture. At the time, this is technically pre-code. Um, and so... The uh, the 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 Hays Code had not fully uh, taken effect yet, but there was censorship to some degree or another. Um, and there's going to be discussions uh, as the as the plot synopsis goes along of like what the Breen Office, re- led by Joseph Breen, objected to, um, and also the various other forms of censorship that took place within this. But this is a film that. Uh, it's 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 notable for two things. One, the content that we are alluding to, but also this is the first team up between Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, um, and the uh, and I and I already did the billing wrong because it should be Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff because Ed Wood taught us that Lugosi triumphs over Karloff. You know, you understand, that? <laughs> uh, uh, but so. I'll ask this uh, leading question before we get into the full production and then the plot. Uh, Zach, had you seen this film before and um, had you, have you had an appreciation for the universal horror of the past?
0: I, I absolutely love universal horror movies. I have a tattoo of uh, another one of my passions is Pez dispensers. So I have a creature of the black lagoon Pez dispenser tattooed on my arm. Um, so I, I love you know the classic black and white horror movies. It, something about them just kind of sets the October spirit. And I have actually watched uh, the Black Cat before, but it's been a while. so I was looking to track it down and I was kind of disappointed to see there's not like a definitive blu-ray um, out there right now, but and the DVD that, oh. that you could get is the burn on demand Universal. Yeah.
1: I will say that there is a Blu-ray available if you haven't seen it yet. Um, There is one by Scream Factory, but it's a part of a four-pack with The Raven, Black Friday, and The Invisible Ray. Um, And they took the most recent restoration that they had in the vault and then did scans of the other three and put them out in this collection. Now, I don't know if this collection is out of print yet, but that's how I have been rediscovering the film because up till then I had to go by either the burn on VOD or the original DVD releases that had been coming out. Um, So that's something I'll, I'll send you the link after we're done recording so that you can, uh, you you can pick this up and Scream factory is a good company. They put out some good stuff. We've, We're obviously all digging into the Jason box that they just put out. Um, Obviously, there's been some error issues, but regardless, it's still an amazing feat that they were able to put that out.
0: (laughs) I never thought they'd be able to top that Halloween box set. (laughs) That was like a miracle from the cinema gods that that even happened.
1: Yeah, I was I was frankly shocked that they did the Karloff and Lugosi one because it seemed like they were never going to put those out on Blu-ray. And I'm like, oh, God. And now they've done what they've done is that was they ended up turning it into volume one of universal horrors. And then the ones that they've been releasing are the ones that are not the monster movies primarily. So like you get Murder at the Zoo or Tower of London and all these other ones that we've known about or heard about uh, within recent years, thanks to things like Secret History of Hollywood or just you know going through the doldrums of like different books but they hadn't really been released or publicized like hey they're out here it's it's pretty fantastic but um so zach when you uh i I will ask this question because this is uh our first podcast dedicated to talking about golden age hollywood and early cinema and such um when you're watching this film, does, is it is it what does it strike you as? Cuz to me it strikes me as something we could have easily made today.
0: <laughs> the movie's kind of crazy. It feels very modern. And that's not something you would say for a movie made in the 30s. Like the setting and even the performances, they don't feel of the time.
1: Mm-hmm. They do they do feel a little bit more um uh elevated or at least a little bit more introspective than you'd expect and i and i i have a feeling that uh some of the things that happen during production kind of lead to the final result that we get because um original we'll go into the background of this production a little bit so this this uh this film was constructed by edgar g Ulmer, who was a friend of carl lemley jr's uh crazy friend of his and Uh, it should be noted as context is that Carl Lemley Jr. son of Carl Lemley Sr. who founded Universal Studios um, he was a fan of the horror movies and ended up producing Dracula and Frankenstein for the studio um, which were big money makers but Lemley Sr. objected to the horror films he found them he found them distasteful and not of his liking Uh, and Lemley Junior was dedicated to the notion of I'm gonna scare the shit out of my dad with something even more insane, and it seems like Edgar G. Ulmer said like Yo, bro, I've got something super twisted right here. <laughs> like, because what we get is the black cat, and um, Ulmer uh, wrote this st- story with Peter Rurick. Um, they uh, put together a budget of uh, nine of, of just around ninety uh, five, 95- ninety one thousand one hundred twenty five dollars, according to the reports and shot for initially 15 days and then had additional days for reshoots and retakes because there were certain things that had to be reworked due to the story, because the first screening of this film in its roughest form nearly gave Lemley senior a heart attack, not just because of the content, but also what it would mean if they released this film (laughs) to the movie going public. Um, and as we go through the plot, we'll understand a little bit further. Um, and it should be noted at this point, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi are on different career trajectories. Um, Lugosi had hit big with Dracula, but then kind of immediately took a downturn, uh, partially from turning down the role of Frankenstein's monster, which he should have because the version that he got was not what ended up being the James Whale well version. Instead, Karloff took, takes the role and becomes a mega star. Lugosi's, Uh, follow-up effort ends up being Murders at the Rue Morgue, directed by Robert Florey, and then he kind of tumbles down a little bit, does some small stuff in between, but kind of leaves Universal, isn't employed by Universal, really, and so he goes off doing scenes from Dracula and Vaudeville before he gets the offer from Universal to come back for this movie, and he sees it as a chance to reinvigorate and re-energize his career. Karloff, on the other hand, had gotten huge, huge um, uh, benefits from Frankenstein. Uh, he ended up being at the point where he could basically make or break his own career. Uh, and he walked from universal due to a salary dispute and ended up re-signing a new contract, which allowed him to work at other studios. Um, and he ended up being in two rather um, uh, big uh, drama pieces uh, from the era. Um, and, then when he comes back to universal he is uh a little bit more of a polished star and he gets this role and it seems like at first he's not too too into it but he uh he appreciates the chance to uh work with Lugosi. he seems it sounds like he was actually eager to do it uh what's interesting about this film a- and karloff in it is is that he's coming off of things like lost patrol and house of rothschild where he has very sinister roles but also but very different and then here he becomes the embodiment of pure fucking evil. <laughs> um and he uh uh in the in the process, when he reads the script for this he's he's like, oh my, this is this is rather this is rather terrifying. Like holy shit, what are you this guy's thinking? And so to the fact that he plays into it and carries along with it is is a testament to his ability as an actor. And this also gives us a chance to see Car- uh, Lugosi in what I would argue is one of his best performances in a movie. He's um, like
0: acting circles around everybody in this.
1: Yeah, world. he is like I I I mean they both are, but Lugosi is. Lugosi is given like this is one of the few good guy roles he ever gets in a movie. Like I like this, like if not the only one because of the fact that he, this is Doctor Vedas Werdegast is a tragic figure, very tragic figure, almost to the point of melodrama, but what ends up playing to the benefit of it, not becoming melodramatic to the point of parody is what Lugosi brings to. There's a certain sense of realism you get with Lugosi in this film, that I think that is not present in his other performances because he doesn't get a script as good as this. Um, But with that, we'll jump into the plot right now um, because this there's a lot that happens in an hour and five minutes, arguably, and we've got a we've got a lot to go over.
0: It's very um, brisk.
1: Oh yeah, very brisk. Like this is like this is a a walk in the park that ha- manages to have a lot of introspection and terror along the way. We open up at a train station, uh, with the with the themes of the Hungarian rhapsody, and this train montage is actually. Uh, taken uh, from footage from the 1932 film Rome Express, and it was done to cut corners uh, during this production because this the budget on this film was lower than even Frankenstein and Dracula. So this was definitely part of the Universal motif of make a horror film on the cheap, sell it out there, and you'll reap some good box office because Universal also struggles constantly throughout the 30s and the 40s, and the horror films are the things that financially save them.
0: Do you know? Um, do you know if Ed Wood liked this movie? Um, no, uh, now knowing that they use that stock footage, like it seems almost like a double, like a a double thing for him. It's like, oh my god, stock footage and Bela Lugosi.
1: <laughs> oh god, you know, it it wouldn't surprise me if he did. Like, I mean, my my knowledge of Ed Wood is not as great as it should be, but I would have to imagine that if he was this Lugosi fan that he would have not only seen this, but delighted in it and learned from it. Like Now, keep in mind, though, I will, I will always point out that like stock footage and, and these types of lifting from other films for the purposes of your film uh, don't uh, aren't exclusive to just horror films made on the cheap. A lot of big-budget films did this technique, whether it was like... A, the, my best example is in Duck Soup. Um, there's a scene near the end where Groucho is calling in support from all corners of the world, And you see a montage of uh, college rowing teams, animals trampling through the through the through the thick jungle brush and monkeys swinging from trees, all running to the rescue for this nation of Fredonia. So um, now that's uh, that's a filmmaker like Leo McCary utilizing stock footage to emphasize the scale it's It's super obvious today, but at the time, I think audiences and filmgoers probably weren't batting too much of an eye when it came to it. Um, but it does it does it does provide a lot of perspective in the sense that Ed Wood, being the filmmaker that he was, might have drawn some inspiration, be like, well, I can cut some corners just like Universal did. <laughs> it is it is pretty insane. and but the, but thankfully, we get past the stock footage. And we open up on the new these newlyweds Peter and Joan Allison, um, and they're on their way to Hungary. And uh, they they're in their compartment. They're about ready to kick back, and then they find out oh, there's been a mix up with the tickets. You're gonna have to have a companion in your car. And the companion that they are paired with is Doctor Vitas Werdegast, played by Bella Lugosi. Can we, and, we talk um, real quick
0: about that? Appearance of Bella Lugosi, so like they're newlyweds. Yes. You could tell they are down to get it on inside that that car.
1: <laughs> they are ready to fuck. <laughs> they
0: are ready, and and then the the ticket guy comes in and is like, "Oh, you know, we have messed up." And then you just see Bella Lugosi turn around the corner, and the look on their face is like, "Oh shit!" Like it, it's like don't
1: it... don't mind me. I I'm more than willing to join in. <laughs>
0: And you don't know if he's a good or a bad guy yet. So all you see, it's like, oh, fuck, Dracula is going to hang out in our goddamn car. (laughs) Have
1: you ever had an orgy with the Count?
0: (laughs) I want to suck your cock. Yeah, it's great.
1: (laughs) I'm glad we got that little line out of the way. We'll never have to bring it up again.
0: (laughs) You're welcome. First episode, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Yeah. If oh, by the way, if you're listening to this and you're objecting to the language that we're using to discuss these films of the past, please remember I don't give a shit. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. But you no, know, he he enters in the dramatic Lugosi fashion, and he's. I mean, he. You are correct. Like you don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy, and that plays to the advantage of what we end up seeing down the line. Originally. Lugosi's character Wordagast was written to be just as sinister and diabolical as uh Pultzig, to the point where it would have been super objectionable to ha like he was going to basically be on the same romantic tear to get Joan Allison's affection, and then the retakes ended up restructuring the film to where Lugosi is more the hero and there's not as there's no sexual conquest for Joan Allison at this point. Um uh, we should point out, though, Peter Peter and Joan are played by David Manners and um, uh, Jacqueline Wells. Now, Jacqueline Wells ended up becoming Julie Bishop, who was um, a, a a staple in the World War II films of Warner Brothers and ended up being the dubber for women who couldn't scream on screen. So she ended up becoming the, the, the screamer for uh, Warner Brothers films in the era. And David Manners had worked with Legosi before – in a little film called Dracula, um, and so David Manners, uh, he's uh, he plays Jonathan Harker in 1931's Dracula, and he he reportedly doesn't like making these horror movies, uh, and did not and, and had no notion that they would ever become classics. He's just kind of like, I don't fucking know. Like they 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 paid me to do work, <laughs> you know. <laughs> they they didn't like nobody. Nobody expected these films to be as classic as they are, but most certainly David Manners was just like I found them to be trash. So, <laughs> you know? um, which isn't too far off from many actors of the era. Like hor- horror, much like today, although this is changing a little bit, thankfully to film thanks to films of the last four years, horror has been kind of relegated to the trash bin genre uh, and hasn't been respected the way it should. But over time, it becomes classier in retrospect. <laughs> Um. So, but they they travel. They're on their way, and we get a little bit more of the backstory of Doctor Werdegast and we were talking about the entrance of this film. I want to talk about his delivery of this speech that he gives in the car uh, to David Manners, because there is. Um, I mean, Zach, you've seen the movie Ed Wood, obviously by uh, Tim Burton, correct? Yes. Yeah, and they talk about. Uh, they bring up the fact that Lugosi was in fact a veteran of the war and the things he had to do to, he was put in the uh, put in the gulag and uh, had suffered terribly before escaping to America. Um, a lot of, it, it would appear that a lot of his world war one experience kind of goes into this monologue that he gives how he's been gone for 18 years. He's a psychiatrist. He's gone for 18 years. He joined the war uh, for Kaiser and country and uh, left his wife in the process, and he he spent uh, the last fifteen years of his of his life um, in a in a prison called Kurgal uh, in Siberia, where he he suffered heinously, and he goes into this speech of like I have returned, I have returned. It's just this this. Uh, emotional moment for Lugosi that you don't get to see in other films. Like you've you've watched the Universal horror films, like Lugosi doesn't get to be emotional like this ever in other um uh, uh, in the other films that he gets to do. Like Igor is the second most famous role he has in Universal horror history, and he is just a creep through and through in those movies.
0: So. Oh yeah,
1: <laughs> he is not he is not prepared for. He, or he is, not, uh, he is not somebody you would put in this particular situation, but you already talked about how the, the, the acting, the, the film feels modern. I think it's a testament to the fact that Lugosi and Karloff are both playing characters that are so ahead of their time. The, and the fact that this film is a box office success is kind of a, an amazing feat because of the fact that they are digging into deep, deep emotional qualities in these in these roles that would otherwise just be like no yes i'm here for fucking revenge What well, you know like I'll, I'll just tell you david manners what the fuck i don't care um and but he is going to be traveling to see an old friend hamar Pultzig, uh an austrian architect but so much more as we're going to find out <laughs> um they uh the we move along the doctor peter and joan are on a bus uh, along on the ride for this bus is the major domo, played by Egon Brecher. Uh and they learn a little bit more about Fort Marmouche, um, and the uh, uh, Poltsig's home is there, and so on the ruins of Fort Marmouche, which was a fort in which many men burned alive, um, and uh, their bus crashes in the middle of a, ra- a huge rainstorm, and the only place that they can go to is Poltsig's home. Now, I talked a little bit earlier about how things were written for this script that then were either rejected or just not used. There was an original uh, uh, introduction to Lugosi's fear of cats in this film was to have been in the bus crash. Uh, there would have been a cat licking the face of Joan, who's got blood streaming down, and Lugosi sees it, gets shit scared, and he would have grabbed the cat by the throat Uh, and thrown it against a rock, which is uh, you uh, it's tough to do that today when it comes to like showing animal violence and like now granted we have a lot way more protective things in place unless you're making a dog's journey. Um, Uh, But um, the, but the, the, uh, the notion of grabbing a cat by the throat and throwing it against a rock seems so foreign to us, in terms of uh, something that could happen, like what's interesting is that if you've se- if you've seen the lighthouse, Robert Pattinson does that to a bird, <laughs> to a gull, a seagull, and it's kind of shocking and takes you aback too. Uh, so they did not shoot this scene, uh, but this would have been one of those examples of like either something where Ulmer's like, ah, maybe this is too much. I don't know. What do you think, Lemon? That'd
0: have been pretty great <laughs> if they did. I I think one of my one of my things about this movie was the the runtime. I just wish it had a little more time to breathe, and that would have been pretty great to. At least the the cat lick in the face. I could see you know them not wanting to shoot the cat scene. Although in nineteen thirty five, yeah. I don't really know how much they cared because they would break horses' legs in westerns.
1: Back then, they, yeah, you know, I don't know they do. if they I, cared. <laughs> I want. I, 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 I wanted. I wondered if it was Lugosi who objected. He's like, no, I'm not going to throw a fucking cat against a rock. You, you are sick. <laughs> you sick people. <laughs> you, you, you horrible. Oh God, Olmer, you are a, you are a, you are a bad man. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, they they make their way up to Fort Marmouche. They uh, enter the house, and. Uh, They are greeted at the door by Thalmall, played by Harry Cording, who would end up being a big staple in many universal films, not the least of which is a film that I love called Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror, as well as other um, films in the Sherlock Holmes uh, canon of that era. Um, And they uh, this all awakens Helmar Pulzig from his sleep. And you see Karloff rise out as if though he's like you know an action figure of doom
0: like (laughs) so when i when i saw that oh a couple thoughts before we get to that so i love how they shot the house it looks like dracula's castle they shot Mm. this modern looking house but it looks creepy but it's very sleek and modern in its architecture design which is really important to the story um yes but it's but it still feels like that creepy gothic castle even though it's very art deco and modern looking.
1: Yeah. And th- and this is an and this is a testament to Omer who and and the production designer who basically are looking at this and going like, well, the castle's been done before. Let's try something different. And this we could we could talk a little bit about this now. It it would make sense to me that The uh, that the that the architecture would look as such because you are dealing with while he while Omer never acknowledged that this was an actual inspiration. um, This is coming around the time where Aleister Crowley is um, a rather prominent figure in the world and a modern day Satanist doing modern doing Satanist things in modern day it would seem as if there's an inspiration to be like, well, let's make this a modern monster, like a modern terror. um, Like who is, he's a master architect as well. So clearly he would be up with the times. So there's a, there's a, there's a thing that the house does to add to the character of Pultzig as this person who is innovative, both in his, the design of his house and also his methods for appeasing Satan. (laughs) So, it's there's there and there's a creepy amount of shadow and uh uh like it just there's a sense of there's a sense of like unease as you're entering this house and I'm and I, I'm it's honestly like one of those things where when we see it in a modern film today like the the Invisible Man the one that Lee wannell did kind of does this too where we're filming in modern houses but you can see there being a lot done with the lighting and shadow. Uh, To make a modern house feel Creepy as especially when they go Into elizabeth moss's ex's big house Again where she discovers How the invisible man becomes invisible And uh so I i'm very uh Impressed by this production Design and and also how much It also resembles World war one uh The 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 sense of world war one Post world war one um dread And um reflection and it it makes sense for poltsig to have this kind of house cuz when you see karloff get up he's got this this haircut out of the out of the modern era he looks like he is ready for the 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 fucked upest of parties <laughs> like he is, he is not he is he is already going to creep you out with the way he enters a scene
0: period so do you um, think when when karloff is sitting up i when i was watching that my first my first thought was like this is take two because he sits up (laughs) just like frankenstein's monster and and it's silhouette and everything i bet the first take was he sat up and the director's like all right i mean that's good that's cool can you do it a little more i don't know like if you were some sort of Creature who is brought back from lightning you, you know something some the fans are like what,
1: what are you, th- what are you saying Edgar would you like me to I don't know go down a fucking well I, I, yeah, yeah, I yeah, your I'm, words not I am not, not a
0: Frankensteiny.
1: I'm not a show pony for you, Edgar. I I'm not going to be degraded and brought back to the it, look. I'm never going to play that monster again. You hear me? I will absolutely, positively never play Cut to 1935, Bride of Frankenstein.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but right, like, does it? It's it's like it, it's very,
1: very. Mo- <laughs> it's it's got that stilted. Now, the one thing I will say is that it does feel different because there, it's not lumbering. It's more methodical. It's It feels like a much more methodical, which is why that second take, does, if it is the second take, it works beautifully because it's a combination of that creature effect, but also there's just like, you feel that he's not human, period. Like he is, he, Pulzig does not feel human whatsoever. He, it feels like he has zero humanity in him whatsoever. And the fact that we are not seeing him head-on and his face for the first couple of moments he's on screen is a testament to Karloff's uh, star power at this point. So in between Frankenstein and Black Cat, he has already made The Old Dark House and The Mummy for Universal. In both films, the makeup is disturbing, it's different, and it's almost like Karloff has to be revealed at each point. Like you can't show Karloff on screen without revealing him. Like you've got to give him a grand entrance. And I would say, I think he gets more than a grand entrance in this film. Cause when you finally see what Poltzik looks like, it is not uh, exactly how you would picture Karloff. If your memory of him is only Frankenstein or the old dark house at this point. So this must have, I don't know if it would have scared audiences, but it would definitely have unnerved them. Like they would have been like, who is this cat? And he's got you know, black garb and whatnot. Like he does not look cool. Like <laughs> yeah. it's a very, very, um, uh, uh, reserved kind of evil. Like, and, and it lends to the fact that he's going to be a more, uh, internalized evil at this point. Um, but, um, uh, they get them to, um, like I said, they're all in the house here. Uh, uh, and uh, Werdigast goes to treat Joan's injuries from the crash um, by giving her Hyacine, Um and it causes her to bera- behave erratically, um, you know, a testament to to uh, early medicine and the the amount of high you'd get probably from it, um, and Peter goes to tend to Joan, but Werdigast goes into Polzig and lays into him for betraying that portraying the fort of Mar- Fort Marmouche to the and selling it to the Russians. And then as a result, it killed thousands of Austro-Hungarian soldiers. Um, Omer based Marmouche on Fort Dumont, uh, the high fortress of Verdun in World War I. And the fort fell to the Kaiser in 1916 and months later, German soldiers were heating their coffee with (laughs) flamethrowers and they detonated shells that caused a fire to erupt and 679 men burned alive and were buried uh, in the, in the cellars and behind the walls. And this is now a German war grave site. So this is like, he is drawing from actual horrors of war to create this, this facade of what looks like an art deco house is actually built on the ruins of evil, which you know, we're, we're horror fans. We know what happens when you try to build something new on top of something old when you've disturbed the ground. What the fuck happens? You know, I mean, oh, now- It never works is...
0: out well if you're going to build anything on a burial ground of any sort.
1: <laughs> no, no, I'll argue that Polzig handles it better than James Karen did as the real estate guy in Poltergeist because I, I think that Polzig's got his shit together where it seems like James Karen was cutting corners in Poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> Polzig embraces
0: it because he is a Satanist.
1: He is a Satanist, and
0: that's the upsell they should have had in Poltergeist. It's like maybe not a family home, but are you guys Satanists? <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> look, 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 look! I'm not saying that satanic rituals work best with this house, but I'm saying that your god is a lie. Uh, <laughs> the and he go, so he goes into this um, story of polzig and also the fact that he stole away. Werdegast's wife Karen while he was in prison because Poltzig had affection for Karen as well. And he wonders where uh where Karen is. Uh and uh as this conversation goes on, uh uh Werdegast uh comes upon the black cat and is scared shitless. <laughs> um and this is as uh uh Paul and J- Peter I'm sorry, Peter and Joan come back in They go into a little tete-a-tete, but Joan walks in from her her drug haze and introduces herself to Pultzig, and Pultzig starts going, "Uh uh-oh, new sacrificial lamb.
0: (laughs) She is wearing all white.
1: (laughs) She is wearing all white. It's obvious when she and... Uh, Peter embrace after this introduction, he grabs the arm of an erotic statue and strokes it like <laughs> this is like gripping it tight. like it's it's the amount of sexual imagery in this movie is fucking baffling. And the censorship on this film, is interesting because of the fact that this went through the Breen office. They objected to this film on 20 counts, among them being killing the black cat, which ends up happening in this film in a different way, but also uh, the skinning alive scene that we'll get to later. And uh, Lemley Jr. and Elmer were like, yeah, fuck that, asshole. And so they put the film out. Breen office sent them a letter of congratulations as a backhanded way of saying, well, I guess that you, you guys are made your bed and you're going to lie in it because anybody who goes to see this film will get what's coming to them <laughs> like, <laughs> this is and there's more about the censorship that we'll get to by the end of this but uh you know um they they, they all go to bed uh and in the middle of this Pultzig goes downstairs we go down to the the uh, the basement of his uh, of his house, and it's this kind of it's it's a combination of Art Deco and also you know Gothic, um, you know like brick and mortar and uh, cobwebs strewn about, and we see these glass coffins uh, that are strewn about that that hold women in white and look like they're kind of suspended in the air, like floating in the air and these are his previous sacrificial lambs for his satanic rituals and we see one in particular that means the most to him um and uh the uh you know P- Pulzig gets another cat after Werdegast kills this first one <laughs> this Werdegast does not like cats he's <laughs> like and then I'm not, not a fan but like, he really does not like these cats. And Pultzig's just like, oh, I know how to scare him. Like, it's just, like, and this is actually stems from something that is reported to be real is, is that apparently Lugosi was not a fan of cats either. So, you know, he's just like, no, I am doing naturalistic act, And I'm doing naturalistic acting because, as you can tell, I hate <laughs> these fucking four legged feline creatures. Like, this is, I, I, I cannot stand them. I cannot stand them. I think I. Dogs are better than cats.
0: <laughs> it's because he wore a lot of black. He shed yeah. all over his clothes. Lip rollers weren't a thing yet.
1: This 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 motherfucking animal is trying to upstage me in who can wear black the best. <laughs> like <laughs> I was Dracula. What has this cat done? Now, I will point out something about the cat. Uh the cat was actually uh it was reported that it was picked out during a contest um, And uh, in this contest um, the, uh, the Lugosi and uh, uh, Karloff were there To basically judge this cat contest uh, And The winner of uh, This cat contest was a cat Named Jiggs uh, And uh, after f- filming Wrapped on this film Jiggs the cat Mysteriously disappeared <laughs>
0: Does Bella Lugosi yeah. threw a knife at it. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: uh, no, it, no, now the owners of the cat laughed it off and said, I'm sure he went to Hollywood because one day he just walked off. I think the cat was just like, nah, man, I've seen shit. I've seen satanic <laughs> ritual. I've seen, and, and by the way, he's holding up his paw and counting out his claws as he does this. I've seen satanic ritual. I've seen knives thrown at me. I've seen incest. I've seen. Satanic, like the just the most batshit. I'm out of here, man. Like your your suburban lifestyle or like your 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 thirties their thirties house style does not do it for me. I've got to go seek out more thrills. I'm out. And then the cat put on a top hat and left out the door. And he
0: wrote Hollywood <laughs> Babylon, believe it or not.
1: <laughs> oh, and that cat grew up to be Kenneth Angar <laughs> Oh my god, yeah. And then I, and we didn't get to see that chapter where the cat goes like, look. The reason I wrote this piece is because I want to tell you that Hollywood is a fucked up place. And here's my own experience.
0: It's implied when they're doing the rites of Lucifer that it's Kenneth Anger. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And, and if you look in the background during one of the rituals, John Waters is there going,
0: hi. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, I love the black cat. I love it. I just, I can't get enough of it. You know, f- fun fact, you know, uh, a lot of the rituals that were done in most of my movies were inspired by the black cat. Let me tell you. Um, you know, uh, so, but anyway, um, they go through the next day, uh, but uh, over before this though, um, Pultzig takes um, Werdegast down to his lair to show him what has been going on. Um, and prior to all that, though, Werdigast, uh tells uh, the majordomo who's been with him that he cannot kill Pultzig because there are too many people at risk. And he already suspects that, Werdig- uh, that Pultzig wants Joan for his newest ritual or to do something with him with her. And so he says, you cannot kill her. He and Pulsig go down to his dungeon. Pulsig shows off a beautiful blonde woman who is played by Lucille Lund, who also uh, appears in the bed next to Karloff and we'll find out that they are interrelated because this blonde woman is actually Karen, his wife, eh, Karen, who is word guess wife. Um, he, Werdigast goes into a, into an emotional uh, disparity, asking why, why is she here? And uh, Pulsig delivers this line of like, I loved her too, Vetus. I wanted to have her, her beauty forever. And Werdigast loses it. Originally, he was supposed to lose it more to the point where he became even more violent and insane. Uh, in this version uh, that we know today, much more restrained he goes and he's about to kill him and then that black cat comes back again and he he falls back and breaks the glass on on this on this like uh measurement grid that it like and just freaks him the fuck out um so anyway though we in the midst of this film we have seen necrophilia we have seen uh sexual imagery up the wazoo we've seen satanic ritual and we've seen uh, the tragedies of war at what point when you're watching this film do you go huh
0: <laughs> on it like that that was uh, honestly one of the things that made me feel this movie was a little more modern than it was uh because seeing like i mean just the book they're reading is the rights of lucifer and then the fact that he has you know bella lugosi's like dead wife our dead daughter in his bed it's like holy shit <laughs> like, like the, the stakes usually never feel that high yeah yes. feel, and,
1: and you know yeah and and they never do and and that's the the point out that we should have is this when we get we, this around this time is where we also get more of a revelation of the fact that there's incest in this plot which is is batshit crazy and lucille lund also plays um uh the the daughter, um, uh the the daughter of um Word of Guest. um and the uh it, it, where we go from here like uh, and we've been talking about Pultzig and Word to this whole time. Meanwhile, Joan and Peter are having the most awkward honeymoon imaginable. Like she's still trying to get over her drug thing. People are lurking. He's around just her trying
0: to bone her the whole
1: time. <laughs> he's just like, look, I don't really care about much like manners in real life. He's like, I don't care about these fucking horror goons or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> look, that, like, that, that Hungarian psychiatrist is messed up. The owner of this house is messed up. I'm tired of it. Like, can't we just be intimate for once? And and you know obviously that's just not going to happen, um, and so within uh, within the within the midst of all this, um, you know, uh, word of Gas tries to make a plan to um, save Peter and Joan because he's like, well, I got to get these people out of here because this because this is even more crazy than I thought he would be, and you I mean I knew he was crazy, but he got worse like it just the, the time has not been kind to him whatsoever <laughs> but the so he um uh he they ch- he challenges polzig to a chess game and it's one of the most tense chess set matches in a movie until we get the ones in the x-men movies i'd argue
0: <laughs> there's okay. also wizards chess and harry potter
1: <laughs> yes oh yes no well that that's that, that's you see, that's different. We we couldn't have them walking around. Now that would have been very spooky. I tried to tell Edgar get people in night suits and queen outfits and let's make this chess game super fucking crazy. And he said that wouldn't be realistic. And I told him fuck you. And then I went back to my trailer to to do the things that I do. And uh, yeah, it, it is. But it is still like one of those like you're you're playing for somebody else's life. It is, it is it is insane that it that it goes as far as it does but it's also intercut with Joan and Peter trying to get out um and we should say before all this has happened is that they are meet, they are met by uh uh police to, uh, two policemen who are investigating the fact that there's been a crash and they try to get a ride back into town, but they can't get a ride back into town because they are not equipped to take them back to
0: town. Sorry, we got bicycles. Can't got bring bi- you back. Bikes,
1: bicycle cops. Now this is, this is like Europe, a European country and whatnot. Maybe like these are more local cops. They are not used to. Uh, they they are not used to like well we are not prepared for this kind of emergency like now if your swan escaped
0: perhaps we could <laughs> I kind of want to see a spinoff with these cops they were pretty funny <laughs> oh
1: god Henry Armetta and Albert Conti like these two and they're also they're also very 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 adamant about which place they prefer people to vacation in their country. <laughs> like they are, they are taking sides in a battle of like, it's like people fighting for Shelbyville versus Springfield. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> it is bananas that this, it's the one moment of real levity you get in the movie. I will say like at the, this interaction with the cops is the only moment of levity in an hour and five minutes of otherwise insanity. Like, and, and this, this amount of comic humor is usually more prevalent in films of the era because you're trying to balance it out and make a show for everybody. But this is, like, really the only moment we get. Um, and so Peter tries to go, like, he tries to plan a way to go back, and Pultzig stalls him off, being like, well, no, 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 that won't work. And so, you know, he's like, well, then maybe I'll telephone to see if we can get a ride out. And, you know, he tries to, Peter tries to telephone. The phone is dead. And in the middle of their game, uh, Pultzic hears this and goes, Do you hear that, Vitas? The phone is dead. Even the phone is dead. And then Lugosi's over there going like, Stop hamming it up! (laughs) (laughs) Cut! 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 You you are, you are, uh, look, you told me that you had no intention of hugging the scene. And I believed you. I believed you. But that line, you are going to stand there and tell me that that line won't become classic? What the? Oh, God damn it. Oh, God fucking Karloff. <laughs> um, and uh, and actually, because we have these two in the frame, uh, we should talk a little bit about the feud uh, that Lugosi and Karloff supposedly had. Now, you know, Zach, what, what, what knowledge do you have of this feud apart from Ed Wood?
0: <laughs> I... Not too much other than you know the, there's always little hearsay on the like the universal special features, but I'm sure the respective estate of both of them are like, please don't talk about it, <laughs> it <is. laughs> on the the Frankenstein special features. So
1: here's a little tidbit which you can learn about on the commentary on the Screen Factory Blu-ray, uh, is that on the fifth day of filming, Jimmy Starr published a column that seemingly kicks off this feud because he talks about that there being tension on the set between these two monster actors. <laughs> and um, the uh, there's there seems to be this uh, this uh, this indication, though, that once Lugosi found out that Karloff was not uh, uh, out to steal scenes and he didn't go in for that kind of hammery, the two were able to get along just fine. If anything, the only thing that it seems like that really peeved off Lugosi was the fact that Karloff um, as per his contract, would the st- the shoot would stop at four for tea time. Uh, tradition in England, uh, this is something that also happened on the old dark house, which apparently pissed off Gloria Stewart as well. Um, that they would just stop, and Lugosi found it unprofessional. It seems, from all indication, that he's like, why, why, why are you stopping? We have got to keep working. Like, I don't drink tea. I'd be so like- <laughs>
0: pissed. It's like. Alright guys, we got such a tight shoot today. We got, you know, all the glass coffins. We can only get like five of the girls here till seven o'clock, so we gotta shoot fast. Tea time for a half an hour. We just had lunch. Yeah, yeah. No they, they, they,
1: <laughs> it, and, yeah, and you know you you have to keep in mind, Karloff, that those women in those coffins, they're only making twelve fifty a day. And they are not they, they are not there for your amusement. They are here to work, as I am here to work. You fucking jerk. (laughs) Um, But uh, apparently Lugosi was also to, you know, break into his weakness for cigars on those breaks. So it seems like it couldn't have been too much of an issue. Um, And uh, going back to those coffins, by the way, though, Lucille Lund, who's playing both the mother and the daughter, she's suspended in those coffins. There's a uh, bit of a tragic uh, story behind Lucille Lund's um, involvement in this film. Apparently she was known um, around the universe a lot as the Virgin Mary. Um, The reason for this is that apparently she had fended off the sexual advances of Junior Limley. Uh, And so she had not been, uh, she had not been down that realm of, um, of of terrible behavior that we are reckoning with today. Um, And it appears that Edgar Ulmer made advances as well. Um, She declined and, one of the pieces of revenge that Omer took was when she was suspended on this in this glass coffin. They broke for lunch and left her there. Which is um, terrible behavior, uh, to say the least. Um, it's it's it, one of the one of the intentions of this show is also to point out how unfortunately a lot of behavior has not changed in film production itself. And this is certainly one that you've seen heard about in various different forms in the more recent years. Um, but regardless though, it seems that Lucille Lund was able to overcome this nonsense and give a fine performance in, in what she's given to do. Um, and like, and I'd argue that like she gives off an air of creepiness just as Karloff is because she is, she's playing a character. There's the scene where they're in bed together and she's not, um, She's, she's, she, she feels off, like something feels off about her, and you don't know yet that she is the daughter. And so you're kind of given the uh, impression that she might be like an accomplice to Pultzig, and then as obviously as the story goes on, you find out that she's not. But like there's something uneasy about her presence, and, that, and I think it's a testament to her ability to kind of play with what Karloff is giving her.
0: Hello. Hello. Yep, I'm so I was I was listening. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: no, it's okay. But yeah, so anyway, though we are uh then uh, we, the 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 match continues and finally ends with a checkmate. You lose Vitas and Vitas just sits back and let Poltsig take over.
0: <laughs> that surprised me too, um, cuz you're like, well surely he's going to win this chess game. Like, something bad will still happen, but, you know, it's not going to be like, oh, he's fucked. Like, I can't believe that.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I was pretty terrible at chess. I should have challenged him to checkers. Um, I, I probably, I Monopoly, it would have taken longer with Monopoly, but I definitely would have won because I have a better sense of business acumen on that board game than I do in my actual life. And you could be
0: the little shoe
1: yeah yeah no, no i'm i am the i am the uh um the the little dog i, I like the i because i had little dogs i bella lugosi loved my dogs and i i like to play out my love for dogs in real life here on this board game featuring a man with a monocle and uh it, it's, it's it's glorious but no chess i'm I'm terrible at chess terrible terrible that's why he won that's why he won i will give the car off this one thing very much knows how to play chess, even in character as a Satanist. <laughs> 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 um, and so uh, Peter and Joan are about to leave, and um, Thamel and um, the Majordomo, under um, his disguise as Polzig's, um com- uh, assistant, um, uh, knock him out, and uh, uh, Joan is taken upstairs, um, and Peter is tossed into a revolving room that... <laughs> <laughs> that uh seals itself uh against the brick
0: sort of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: it's it's like it how do you describe it it's like so it's a rotating room it, I, the door's there
0: i took it as maybe it was some sort of like old turret type room from the war mm-hmm. from yeah. the old fort
1: yeah so then that way they'd be able to kind of like either store things or or hide in an event of an attack
0: But it's funny so they like throw them in there. They. Turn off the light, and then they rotate the door. It's like, oh, he's fucked. And then, <laughs> oh, slightly later, it's like, oh no, he just had to also turn it. Like it, was, <laughs> it was no more inconvenient than just being put in a normal room that's not locked with the light on.
1: <laughs> well, well, he wakes up and he goes like, well, this isn't difficult. I just, I, I've got a match, and here we go. Ah, oh, oh, see, it's modern mechanics. Gotcha.
0: Like, turn the wheel. All right.
1: I look. I didn't think he would actually get up. I thought he was a coward. I, <laughs> did, I, I assumed that everything would go according to my plan because, as we all know, I sacrifice, uh, I I I I assault women on the altar of Satan and then sacrifice them to him. So it's clear that I should have. Uh, it's clear that I should have the upper hand here. <laughs> but, you know, uh, my Lugosi and my Karloff are starting to blend together. That's terrible. <laughs> um, it's, it's Lugosi with a lisp. <laughs> but um, uh, and that's not I, I, I hope I am not offending anybody with a lisp out there. It's, it, this is actually, if anything, it's, it's a loving tribute to uh, Karloff's um, ability to overcome such a lisp. Um, what's interesting is that throughout this movie, he's given a lot of words that would call out that lisp and yet because he delivers it the way he delivers it even though you can hear the lisp it still sounds terrifying it is it it. he still gives off that air of creepiness like he could never like no amount of inhibitor would uh ever be able to overshadow the ability that he would bring to a role hands down um and so we uh cut away to the organ um uh Playing Bach, and um, uh, this uh, th- th- this this classic tune that we all know, um, and the organ sessions from this film apparently were scheduled for one to six hours. So there's <laughs> there's a lot of organ playing in here, and the music itself is kind of scattered. There's a range from Brahms to Bach, just the several uh, musical influences permeating the film to create the mood that we get, um, and there's and it's 80% of the movie in which it's covered with pre-existing music. Um, so that's interesting how it also kind of trail it's it's its own trailblazer as other films are of this era of using pre-existing music to motivate and guide your story, which is something that you know we see a lot of today, mostly with um, sp- uh, pop songs or rock and roll songs and whatnot. but this was the early version of that.
0: I felt like Universal did that quite a bit where maybe, yeah. maybe they had the rights to certain music, so They would, I mean, I probably one of the more famous ones is like the opening for the mummy and the opening for Dracula have the same.
1: It's just Swan Lake.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm sure the person who wrote Swan Lake was like, you know, everybody's just going to remember this as this beautiful, this beautiful this beautiful ballet there's no way it would ever 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 possibly be construed with something terrifying dracula 1931
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're like uh, remember I... what works so well the mummy
1: oh dude it does it works it works both for both i'd argue cuz it just it's it unnerves you a little bit because it feels like it's an ancient horror like it feels like there's a there's a something um eternal about it um, like it always has been there. Like it's like a, a lamentable melody for a terrible thing that has been sitting up in a castle for like de- eons, you know. So it uh, it it uh, it it really does help that atmosphere and uh, really kind of sells this point. But this ritual is about to begin, and we can't be late. We gotta. So you know, Zach, get on your black garb, and you know, make sure your women have the white garb, and. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll go down for a good old-fashioned uh, devil-worshipping ceremony. Here's the thing about this ceremony. So it's implied through most of this that, uh, because obviously of the era you were not going to get away with this, is that the, the the women who are sacrificed are defiled by Poltzig and then sacrificed at the altar. Um, this is even the imagery of just a satanic worship going on in this film uh, is is baffling to think about. It's even more baffling, more so that we talked about the censorship in this film. Um, so, it, or Zach, are you familiar with the Catholic Legion of Decency?
0: Uh, not on a personal level. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, they didn't like Adam the Amazing Zombie Killer, so they just didn't speak they, to you.
0: <laughs> they, they were like, you know, we're big fans of uh, Cannibal Girl and Incest Boy. Uh...
1: <laughs> but this one just took it too far.
0: <laughs>
1: we didn't appreciate people fucking on the hood of their car in a cemetery. <laughs> but... You know, like, I will say, though, that um, it's interesting, though, it, it would make sense if the Catholic Legion of Decency liked Cannibal, uh, can, Cannibal Girl, and says, boy, because, because they they not only did not give this film their condemned seal, which was very notorious of the era, but there was a woman's group called the Motion Picture Bureau of the International Foundation of Catholic Alumni, and they put this film on a list of 13 recently released films that were suitable for family night programming, showings, showings in church halls and Catholic schools. Zach, what have we talked about with this movie?
0: (laughs) I, well, that that's, that's pretty surprising. Cause for me, it seems of everything I've seen from the era, this is definitely the more extreme and shocking type stuff. Like I, I was one watching this. I could not think of any other movies from around this time that you know pretty blatantly show a satanic cult performing rituals.
1: Yeah, and I don't believe that many would exist, especially in this country. Um, and you know, and you know, I should clarify with this show. Like, I've not seen every Golden Age Hollywood movie in the world. Um, the 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 amount of the well of knowledge that we've still got to go through is still immense. But this is an example of one of those films where it's just like, how in the world did this shit get by people? And I think part of it, uh, I think part of it extends from the fact that it is clever in how it approaches it, because it's not one. Obviously, it's not showing actual action. Um, it's it's very much by implication, the use of shadow and expressionism to indicate certain things. Um the dialogue kind of works its way around saying it out loud like instead of saying like i i love this corpse so much that i jack off to it while it's in this coffin it's the line i wanted to have her beauty forever so they work around the the obvious with their own version of like it's it's one of those things that for all that the censor board was bullshit about in those eras It's interesting that they ended up becoming the reason that film could become an art form through the writing, the direction, the acting, because they had those limitations. So there's like a give and take when it comes to the censor boards of this era. Um, And like, obviously, you know, we're talking, we were talking earlier about, you know, Adam, the amazing zombie killer, but also Troma. You know, they are, they are the extension of what happens when the censorship code doesn't exist and the rules are, the rules are off the table, Um, but so but it's interesting that now we live in a world where you can you can approach it from both ways and still get the same effect technically. Um and it's and it's something that one of those things that I like about like about your film and also Trauma in general is like that they are willing to just go full out with the things that we only got to allude to back in the day. Like I like the illusion and I like the mystique. But I also appreciate somebody going like, now nah, we're just going to show it. <laughs>
0: well, and, so, and a lot of times, though, that's uh, that's reactionary to to the not being able to show it back then or um, to quote terraformer. Sometimes the only way to piss people off is to get them to look or the only way to get people to look at shit is to piss them off. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, that. Kind of goes. <laughs> this hey, this is
1: well. this, this is Lemley Jr. again. See, this is why I showed Pops the black cat because I said, "Like, look, I'm just gonna shove this right in your face. Like, I'm not, I don't give a shit. Like, you, you, the old man. You need to understand that this is the future. And <laughs> this, I still love. I I mean, I don't love it because Carl Lemley Senior was also apparently reportedly a, a you know a very courageous man who saved a lot of people from his European German uh, European country that he came from um amidst the outbreak of nazism in world war ii but um but he the fact that he was like looking at this film and like clutching his chest going jesus fucking christ <laughs> what? what what we're doomed <laughs> um so the ceremony goes on and uh word of goes up to warn joan Originally, this scene was going to have Wurzig, was going to have Wurdegast attacking Joan and uh, alluding to the fact that he was also pining for affection, but these reshoots obviously allude to the fact that he's here to save her. Um, The ritual commences. She is brought down. She is tied to the altar, the, the post of the altar. The ritual is about to go on. We get these creepy shots of the parishioners of this satanic cult. And then a woman looks at something and screams. <laughs> we don't see what she screams at, we just see she screams. <laughs> My guess is that she was a newcomer to the group <laughs> and did not expect the things that would happen in this ritual. She's like, "I didn't I didn't sign up for this." <laughs>
0: I was okay with the creepy house and the girls in the glass coffins, but this ugh.
1: Yeah, and especially the organ music. I love the organ music, but no, no. Rape at the altar. No, 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 no. <laughs> Not at all. And uh it gives Werdegast and the Major Domo a chance to free Joan. Um and prior to all of this, Joan has revealed to Werdegast's daughter that she that her father is here. Uh, Pultzig has seen this and takes her in and essentially kills uh, his daughter slash wife. (laughs) Um, So when Werdegast saves Joan, they're running around to try to get out. And Joan reveals this fact to Werdegast in which he goes, say what? And uh, they, uh, you know, Werdegast finds uh, his daughter dead on this slab. And um, and he is torn into an emotional rage. Um, uh, Pultzig is looking for aghast to figure out like where, why has everything gone wrong and to take him out for for good. Um, the uh, the major domo has already taken out Thaumal at this point in their chase, um, and he is uh, left behind, kind of bleeding on the ground after being shot. Poltzig comes in and. Bella Lugosi and Karloff start wrestling each other in this, <laughs> this corner. And it is really interesting to see these two monsters have a literal monster fight in a way that, you know, when you hear about Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, an image conjures up into your head of two monsters fighting and it doesn't come out the way you want it to. Uh, but this is an example of two monsters fighting each other. Like it is it is while, while Vertigast is not a complete monster in this movie, he has his own monstrous side that we are going to see in a minute. Uh, so just watching these two duke it out on the floor is, is just a delight to watch. Um, And we get that Peter finds a way to escape (laughs) because, again, this this trap that Pultzig had set up was not that hard to get out of. (laughs) (laughs) Super, super easy. Uh, And uh, he uh, and and amidst this Major Domo comes back in still bleeding, helps subdue Pultzig together. He and Werdigast get Pultzig strapped uh, to some shackles in the same room. And uh, the major domo collapses um, with the key to the door in his hands. Uh, Joan is in there; she's terrified. Uh, Werdegast goes up to Polzig and just goes, "Have you ever seen an animal skinned? That's what I'm going to do to you now. Tear the skin, fr- flay the skin from your body slowly, bit by bit. And what we get through shadow is Karloff being skinned alive." And the only thing that makes it look a bit dated is the fact that he's doing it with clearly a small scalpel. (laughs) And so it kind of looks like he's giving him a shave. (laughs) But because I have believed these characters, because I have believed their their goals, their hopes, their satanic wishes, that when that happens, I am shocked that this got by because... If the breen office objected to it, they would have put in enough fear to be like take this shit out. They keep it. It's still in there. You see through the shadow Lugosi skinning Karloff alive. And you don't see Karloff on screen, his face on screen after that point indicating his face is in tatters.
0: <laughs> it's just it's... nuts. Like <laughs> that they they even just did that cuz there's not another movie before that that I'm aware of. Where, where they're like, all right, skinning somebody alive.
1: Ulmer's <laughs> like, well, they've done that, they've done that, they haven't done this. <laughs> oh, I'm a genius. And uh, they're, he's skinning him. Uh, Peter comes up to the door that is locked to get Joan, to get the key to get out. Werdigast um, tries to help Joan get the key from the Major Domo's hands. Peter thinks that... Um, uh, Uh, Vertigast is in on this whole thing He's not sure who to trust And so he shoots Dr. Verdagast. But not before getting Joan the key He staggers around He says go, go And um, Vertigast Shuffles over To this control panel And he goes This switch here ignites the dynamite The red switch Five minutes He throws the switch And he goes. It's been a good game, Um, and uh, the the entire Art Deco house of Satan worship explodes in a glorious fashion. Um, And we we leave Peter and Joan, who are now in a position to get it on. (laughs) (laughs) They now and and in the middle of the plot, it's revealed that Peter is a is a mystery writer. Um, And the final moment of this film is them on a train to resume their honeymoon reading a review of Peter's latest novel where the reviewer, the critic in a snarky way goes, there's no possible way that this shit could happen. And Peter and Joan look at each other going like, Oh, but we just went through Satanism and incest and murder. (laughs) (laughs) And it ends a universal picture. This has been the black cat. This film is batshit crazy. (laughs) and it's only, it's only an hour <laughs> it's only an hour you now you, and and i will say that you you know you and with adam and the amazing zombie killer you guys have an hour and 17 minutes and you pack just as much crazy shit as this movie does so
0: it, that's because like, we weren't very organized
1: well no but, <laughs> but 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 it also is a testament if you're if you're if you have a limited time frame <clears throat> then you then you are you, you are going for broke on it and now this is you know like the the film the black cat probably maybe had like a couple more minutes in there but like it's still a a a testament to how those films of the era worked where sometimes logic scenes are skipped that are plot holes but they still work as a cohesive piece of art um and the director and creator of this film edgar g omer this is this would be one of this is the film he is most remembered for for good reason because of the amount of ingenuity that is put into this very low budget film that becomes this box office success. But unfortunately, Omer would not be able to enjoy that success because, um, during the middle of production of this film, um, he fell in love with Sally Kessler, the, uh, assistant script girl. She fell in love with him, but there was a problem is, is that, uh, Kessler was already married and he was married to, Carl Lemley Sr.'s nephew, Max Alexander. So when Carl Lemley Sr. heard of this affair, Omer um, was already uh, being lauded on the lot and was about to direct Karloff in a movie called Bluebeard. Um, Lemley Sr. had him banned from Universal and blackballed in Hollywood. And Omer did not attend the premiere of uh, The Black Cat as a result. Neither did Lucille Lund, probably because of what she went through at the hands of Omer. Um, But Ulmer and Kessler would marry in 1935 and he would reemerge after Lemley Sr.'s death and become the king of B-movies at PRC studios where he would make noir films. He would end up making Blue Beard with John Carradine um, and then he would eventually pass away in 1972, his wife passing in 2000. Um, He did say that he regretted never having a chance to direct Karloff and Lugosi again. Um, But he left behind a very, very batshit crazy film (laughs) that that has still inspired films to this day. I'd argue that a lot of where horror is allowed to go down the line stems from The Black Cat. We are especially dealing with, within the last 10 years, we've had a lot of instances of horror cinema and regular cinema dealing with not just Satanism, with stuff like uh, House of the Devil, but also, um, the, I mean, the, the, frankly, the ideas of incest that carry on into films like Stoker and Old Boy come from the abilities of the black cat to break those taboos, to, do, to bring them on screen as moments of terror. Um, but also the amount of trauma that is discussed about a post-war world, which is something that has happened in cinema, and we still, we still use that trope to this day in multitudes of genres um zach when you uh when it's all said and done when you think about this film like what do you what what have you found uh in thinking about it that um you could draw to today in terms of what it's able to get away with
0: maybe not so much what it's able to get away with but you can tell from the performances of of legosi and karloff that they've seen some shit just like from the monologues they give like you feel it in your bones which is you know that that was something that definitely stuck with me throughout you know watching that movie
1: now and i will say does it does it um was your did you when you as you've gone through life um have you been a lugosi guy or a karloff guy
0: um honestly i'd say more of a karloff guy just probably because the movies he he is in have been better okay
1: that that's that's a very fair statement what I'll follow up with that is, is that as you've uh, seen this movie, but also probably other Lugosi performances, does it um, dispel the notion that Lugosi could only play something like a Dracula?
0: It, it is. It actually made me feel really bad that Lugosi got typecast as a Dracula and not the leading man that you would hope. I mean, he's in 116 movies. So to say that he wasn't in, (laughs) you know never got his fair shake isn't necessarily accurate but there's definitely typecasting where this like it seems like he he had almost the pull to pull the the performance he wanted to Mm -hmm. from this character where a lot of times they are like give us Dracula give us spooky monster man um and this it's like he could totally play you know the gangster lead or you know a number of other characters he just never got the opportunity to play which feels like a missed opportunity because every time he's on screen in this movie like it's not you're not watching him in an ironic way whereas i feel like karloff it's like there's sometimes his performances you know, great. And other times in this movie, you're looking at his ridiculous outfits.
1: (laughs) There's, I will say that like, you are absolutely right with Lugosi because of the fact that, you know, he didn't get a chance to stretch his legs. Uh, The most prominent role that he would have after this film would be Igor in the Frankenstein series um, where arguably he gives his best performance because he is able to breathe creepiness into a different form and fashion. Um, But yes, he was typecast. He was also relegated mainly to Poverty Row. Whenever he got with Universal, it was always on a freelance thing, so they never had him under contract. Um, As as is well documented in not just biographies, but also notably in the movie Ed Wood, he suffered from a morphine addiction um, that he worked to kick, became one of the first celebrities to publicly check into rehab, and unfortunately passed away in 1956. Um, I will leave it on a positive note for Lugosi is, is that uh, in 1956, the year of his death, he apparently did go to a screening of The Black Cat, a revival screening of it with his then wife um, and some admirers. And apparently, when he uh, w- was watching the film, when he first comes on screen, um, he, uh, he was known to, you know, he, he, had, he had an appreciation for, him for his own self. So he was on. He was in the screening. He comes on screen and he shouts at uh, at the top of his lungs. My, what a handsome bastard I used to be! <laughs> yeah, look at me. Look at my shit. <laughs> I was fucking amazing. <laughs> Fuck Karloff. Um, uh, and then Karloff. We obviously know that he ended up going into a further legacy of uh, of horror films and. Uh, other roles as well that would define him as one of the iconic film actors of the golden age of Hollywood. Obviously he would end up being the Grinch in television. Um, He would also be a bit of a fixture on television as well. Uh, One of the last films that he did was a movie called targets by Peter Bogdanovich, which is a film that I'd like to discuss in the context of this overall show because of how it's both a, a pre it's a new wave film that operates in sort of pre new wave terms. Um, but, uh, but that wraps it up for the black cat as a film. The film is a box office success, even though critics kind of dis- dismiss it as, you know, tripe or subnormal. And, uh, it ended up, you know, producing a lot of, uh, it had some outcry. It doesn't seem like there was that much. There was a publicity stunt in Indianapolis where a universal, uh, advanced man arranged a screening at a theater. On a Saturday morning, anybody under 16 with a black cat, a pure black cat, was was allowed free admission. And apparently, this resulted in a nightmare for the theater staff, uh, to the point where the cats had to be locked away in a mezzanine office, a mezzanine level office, until the end of the movie. And when-, and when the movie was over, they had trouble. Owners had trouble identifying their own cats. <laughs> <laughs> No, silly. Seem um, good on paper. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. The, the publicity departments of movies is something I'm going to definitely get into as this series carries on. But uh, but that's going to wrap it up. Zach, do you have any final thoughts on The Black Cat?
0: I think if uh, anybody out there has not seen the movie and loves the Universal Monsters, you're doing yourself a disservice by not watching it. You definitely need to check it out. At least, at least once. And you're, it's an hour, so... That's like two episodes of Family Guy that you can- yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> two hours of Family Guy and much more deep than Family Guy. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Zach, for being the inaugural guest on Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Thank you, um, thank you. That's gonna wrap it up for this episode. But before we go, what what are you working on right now, and where can people follow you?
0: Uh, right now um you can follow me just like that movie It Follows. Just start walking <laughs> behind me slowly in the parking lot. Um I'm on I uh took a hiatus on the Facebooks for a while until uh until that shitstorm dies down. But I'm on Twitter on that shitstorm at Lego Larry and I'm on Instagram at Lego Larry. And right now I, I have a children's book that uh, I am working on publishing about the monsters and their different type of shoes they wear. Aww. And uh, yeah, so that'll be fun for the whole family. And uh, I have a podcast coming soon to your ear holes called Talkin' Trauma," where I do deep dives on different trauma movies that you may not have heard of. Heard so, of.
1: so, yeah. And uh it, it it this is going to be an interesting time because i i i am already aware of what i've got to watch and... <laughs> well, i I think it'll
0: be a fun a fun episode for for yeah. you to talk to talk to
1: oddly <laughs> enough, I think I tackled the more offensive film here than
0: <laughs> <laughs> probably
1: yeah but we'll we'll talk about it i I have to go back and revisit it for the show so but that's going to wrap it up for this episode of yesteryear Ballyhoo review. We hope you continue to listen to the show and enjoy listening to it and uh, participate in conversations on our social media. Um, And uh, you can also check me out on real nerds podcast. If you so like to hear me talk about modern films and uh, yeah, that's, that's been interesting lately because of the pandemic, but you know, still a fun time. You can listen to Ryan, Brad and I chill out and kind of talk about film. Um, But until next time, good night. (laughs) This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.